The e-commerce fuel podcast is sponsored by Shopify, the card I use and love because it eliminates frustrating technical and server problems. Like a magenta logging issue I had before we switched over that brought our store to a crawl and required the better part of a day to troubleshoot. What's the only thing better than eliminating tech headaches? Making more money. And Shopify can help there too. We experienced a whopping 41% increase in conversion after moving our store to Shopify from Magento. So quit fighting with servers and make more money. You can learn how at shopify.com. Welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast, your headquarters for building a six figure plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Derry. Hey guys, it's Andrew here and welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today with me. On the show, I've got James Olander from theroost.com and James is the inventor of The Roost, which is a laptop stand that gets your laptop off of your desk up to head level. So it it makes it much easier to use. You're not always hunched over looking down. And it's been a really successful product. James has had multiple six-figure Kickstarter campaigns for two versions of this, the latter of which he's currently in the middle of right now. And we get into the nitty-gritty behind, you know, of course, how he came up with the idea, but more specifically, how he prototyped his initial one, which is a really cool story and not quite as intimidating as you might think, which was encouraging to me. Through everything with manufacturing, different types that he pursued, whether it was kind of just basic versus injection molding, the whole gamut. It, it's an interesting story. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and dive in today right in to our discussion with James. James, so after fighting the uh, Skype demons, I think we've finally prevailed here. Excited to dive into the uh, <laughs> into the story of the roost. Excellent. So thanks so much for, uh, for coming on, first of all. And Certainly. I want to ask, you know, so some people I'm sure are familiar with it, but for those who aren't, what's the roost and why did you end up building it? Yeah, the roost is part of a solution that reinvents how you sit at a laptop. The idea is that you get your screen way up off the desk and that your screen's now at eye level, so it's not sitting there where you're hunched over, putting a lot of stress on your neck and on your back. And so the Roost is this portable stand that you then use with a portable keyboard and a mouse to create this ergonomic workstation. It's actually something I made after living through having really bad laptop posture for a long time. So I was very passionate about finding a good solution for it. And this, this new Roost is now the second generation of that attempt at uh, solving that laptop hunch problem. So what is it? I, mean, I think most people understand or have heard of you know, carpal tunnel with the typing. Fewer people, myself included, didn't really know that there was posture problems with the laptop. What is it that causes so many problems? Is it just the look, kind of having your head tilted down? Is it that somehow leads into the entire posture change? What is it that's so harmful about using a laptop in, you know, on a desk? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So it took me like three years of going to physical therapists and then basically saying the same thing to me before it finally kind of sunk in. But it's actually really simple. When you lean forward and when your head is hunched down, looking down at the desk, what that does is all of the uh, the neck, the, the muscles and the ligaments that are surround your, uh, your vertebrae, they actually constrict all the nerves that come out of your like C4 and C5 vertebrae in your neck. And it's just like a garden hose. So as you start to constrict those nerve paths, all the signals that go through them start getting kind of haywire. And those are the nerves that go down to your arms and down to your hands. And so completely the pressure and bad posture you carry in your neck, in your neck, excuse me, 
translates then into all the pains and aches you feel further down your body. So if you can fix your posture, then you can fix a vast majority of the problem for that type of thing. So the version we're going to be talking about real shortly, and the one you've got the Kickstarter for now, is the second iteration of the Roost. But of course, you started with V1.0. Yeah. So how did you, that first version, how did you build that and prototype it? Is it in terms of, you know, were you 3D printing stuff? Were you were you cutting it with a welder? I've never done something like this. So I, I'd yeah. love to hear the process behind, you know, how did you, how did you build it and prototype it? Yeah, totally. Uh, happened to live in an area where I could rent time at basically a machine shop. They call this tech shop. It's in the Bay Area. But basically the equipment they had there was what I had to work with. And I found a laser cutter to be super useful because I could basically with a Corel draw or Photoshop, you can cut out, like you can make line patterns on a computer and then you literally hit print and this laser cutter goes and cuts it out of a flat sheet of plastic or wood or whatever it is you want to make it out of. So then it was just playing with all different designs, snapping them together, see what would work. And I eventually stumbled on this kind of recipe of a certain plastic that's called Delrin and and riveting it all together on top of some other more structural components. And that crazy combination of things I was able to put together into a fairly consumer-friendly version. And so the, the production was actually made on the same laser cutter as I was doing my prototyping on, which is actually a pretty unique situation when you're not investing in like new production equipment you can just use your prototyping equipment so you weren't using some kind of super high-end cad software to create the prototypes you were really just firing up a more or less a paint program or a photoshop program measuring like you know drawing lines figuring out how many pixels or inches were apart from them and printing that off and using a laser cutter to print that off yes eventually though i got into having the entire product created and constrained and dimensioned within a CAD program because it's CAD's actually a lot easier to manipulate than it is like a drawing program, like a Corel or a Photoshop. But I, I literally would create the shapes in the CAD program, translate those to Photoshop, just in saving in a different file format. And then from Photoshop, you hit print to the laser cutter and it cuts out the profiles that you had created in the CAD software. So, um, all of it, I think, is very, very like learnable for you know a few YouTube videos and playing around with. There's a lot of free software out there, so yeah, very accessible though. That's so cool because I think so many people, myself included, you think about designing your own product and and something that you know that's not not just even a fabric thing, but something that has you know hard metallic or plastic parts, and uh, it's really intimidating. And of course, I'm sure it took a lot of work and learning, but it's. Like you said, it seems fairly accessible if you're willing to put in the legwork. You don't have to have a CAD degree or a CAD, a, 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 you know, a mechanical engineering degree. No, absolutely. I, and actually, the the rate at which this equipment is becoming more affordable is just absolutely crazy. Um, you can get a like what ten years ago or five years ago would have been a fifty thousand dollar machine. Now you can get a one for like three thousand dollars, and it's so it's so inexpensive. You could even you know just have one to play with. And then once you have that, you'll start learning new ways to do things, new tricks and all this stuff. Um, so it's, yeah, it's totally a, a renaissance for the maker that wants to be doing that stuff. So how much money of your own did you have invested into uh, when you launched your first Kickstarter uh, for the Roost V10? Um, how much money did you have invested, say, in materials, in uh, the CAD work, all that kind of stuff to get it to the point where you were ready to launch that Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, it's a good question. 
Well, I, so I guess, yeah, the, the whole trajectory is I probably had $10,000 in just, and that's like a, that's, that's probably a high estimate, but of buying just all sorts of different materials, testing stuff out, paying for the membership at the machine shop. And I had to do a couple uh, MOQs orders on some of the parts I wanted to do. So I, I would end up getting like 400 or something when I'd only need to test a couple of them. So uh, there were a few cases like that. Uh, but it, but then by the time I launched, uh, I also had a Kickstarter video made by a third party. So that was like three or 4,000. So by the time I launched, it was probably 20,000 um, over like a four or five month period, I would say. And were you doing this full time on the side? Yeah, so I was—I I had a job up until about three months before the Kickstarter launched. I was actually—I was either going to go back to school in the fall, and so I was taking a super long break because <laughs> I, I, the Kickstarter launched in June, and I think my last day at work was some, somewhere in like February or March. And so I was either going to go back to school or I was something was going to happen with this Kickstarter. So I had three months off. I was working full-time on preparing for the Kickstarter. But then before that, I'd been working probably six months on the nights and weekends with a full-time job on the design. So I, I think, like I've said before, like all in all, it's probably, probably like a thousand hours of work going into it. And it, it paid off, of course. The, the first Kickstarter you did was, was really successful. And do you remember the, the numbers in terms of number of backers and, and dollar amount that it finished at? Oh yeah, certainly. That's yeah, probably like your first kiss. Yeah, you gotta you remember all the, the <laughs> first. Uh, yeah, you never. I shouldn't have asked you that. I should have said what were they? <laughs> um, yeah, oh, it's so successful. I don't even remember them. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was twenty five hundred backers, and it raised about one hundred ninety thousand. And the interesting thing is that it was literally half of that until three days before it ended. Uh, I got some great press from TechCrunch like three days out before it ended. And that just doubled like everything to date in those three days, which is pretty wild. And, and what was your, your goal for it? I mean, even at, even at 90,000, that's a, that's a great Kickstarter, you know, most people's standards. So going into it, what was the number would you have been like, if we hit this number, I'll be happy. Yeah. The goal was 9,500 and that was going to cover these MOQs I was talking about for three or four different components. So you know, I was in the clear if I could hit 9,500 and start making them. But actually what happened was I was actually in worse shape at 90,000 than I was at 190,000 because the, the manufacturing complexity, the volumes I would have to produce at 90,000 would be, were high enough to like make it that you really didn't want to use the original kind of like hand assembly, hand squeezing stuff that I was going to use. And so by having the 190, I was able to buy some automated riveting machines that made the riveting a heck of a lot easier. So if I hadn't gotten to that higher goal, I think I would have been in worse shape with that 90,000. So I was pretty lucky to, to get that windfall at the end. Huh, okay. That's crazy. It's super counterintuitive, but it makes sense. So you launched, you, del- you know, delivered everything version 1.0. And this, is this June, 2013? Correct. Yep. Okay. June, 2013. So after you finished the Kickstarter campaign, you know, you've got a product that obviously people want and you're building it. How did you transition into trying to turn that into, you know, kind of a, an ongoing e-commerce business, you know, instead of the, the one-time pop of Kickstarter segueing that into an ongoing business? Was that 
a pretty easy transition? Was that something where you saw the, the order flow continue to come through? Did you have a huge drop off? And if so, like, how did you market that and make that, uh, make that move? Yeah. Going into this, for me, intuitively, it's always been that if, it's, if the product's good and useful, people will talk about it. The key factor, key point there being like it's good. Uh, there's, there's so many Kickstarters that deliver really kind of subpar items. And I did everything in my power to, to deliver the first products and generation as to the best quality I possibly could. That then led to a continued, like once the product was being used and viewed, the momentum there just from word of mouth after, you know, now after the Kickstarter, I've got three or 4,000 of them out there. Then their friends see them and someone else sees them. So there's kind of this critical mass of word of mouth that I was able to hit. And the only way that would work is if it was good. So that was where I didn't really plan it out, but I knew that if the product was good, people would talk about it. So, and I, I had some rough numbers that if I were to sell like a couple hundred a month, I could break even and, you know, keep the lights on in the business. And so I was able to figure out within a couple months after selling full time that based on just word of mouth sales alone, I was going to be able to do this monthly kind of this typical, this monthly sales to, to keep me going. And I, I couldn't have predicted that ahead of time. Um, it, it really was like, that was my first measuring point was like, is this thing really real? And that was two or three months after I'd started shipping and fulfilling. So it really was a long cycle to like figure out if it was going to be successful. You didn't have a Kickstarter in 2014. What kind of revenues did you see uh, for the full calendar year 2014? So I had this, the recurring monthly sales and then also a couple of like pretty big corporate orders as well. And that, I think, I think it was like 250, maybe like, I think it was 350,000 for 2014 and revenue. And, but the, the whole time though, it really was kind of a, an employee of one with a lot of subcontractors. So, and actually, you know, kind of like going into Roots 2.0, my margins really were not high enough on the first product to have room to invest in growth. And that was, so even though the revenues were there, there still wasn't enough margin to invest in advertising and other channels to get the product to grow. So that's where, that's kind of how the 2.0 came about. Got it. And what, last question that I do want to dive into 2.0 and, and hear yeah. about it more. What about patents? You hear from different people. Of course, everyone thinks you invent something. The next thing you do is you get a patent on it. But I've heard, you know, kind of heard differing views and, and from some, some fairly accomplished inventors and entrepreneurs that say, you know, it, as a small company, especially a small entrepreneur, you, yeah, you can go get the patent. But how much value does it actually give you? Because really, a patent is just a license to sue people. Uh, at some level, and if you're going up against a big company, I mean, you can yep. take them on. But uh, so, what, what's what's your view on that? Did you see? Obviously, you created something proprietary, has a lot of value. Did you take the time and effort to patent it, or did you kind of take that that latter approach I described? No, I well, I took, I did patent it, but I sort of subscribe now to the latter approach, uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, you're exactly right. Say you do get a patent, which you aren't going to find out for two or three years, and the cost really never stopped coming to maintain this patent. So, you know, you better be in business, you better be bringing in money or you better have like a trust fund somewhere to continue to pay for the ongoing costs of getting the patent and maintaining it and things like that. And then if you ever do have to go after someone, you know, that's a hundred thousand dollar minimum adventure to go 
sue someone for patent infringement. That's probably way under what it actually would cost. So unless you are in the seven, eight figures in revenue, you're going to have a hell of a hard time enforcing anything unless you're, you know, you can find lawyers to like work for free to enforce it. But yeah, it's, it's kind of an insurance piece. And if you plan on defending it or you do it as part of uh, a plan to sell the company down the road. So now you have two or three patents, you've got a little product line and that, you know, someone to a bigger fish, it's easier just to buy you and your IP than it is to try to work around it. You know, that could be another avenue too. But I think for I'm probably going to patent the new one as well. I've got that process started, but I'm going to look very hard at what the strategy really is going forward. So let's move into to Roost 2.0. Of course, that's the the new and improved Roost, the one you've got the Kickstarter campaign running actually right now on that uh, for a really cool product. I ended up backing it. I'm really excited to get mine in September, yeah. October when they ship. But well, why do Roost 2.0? I mean, you mentioned the margins for for one thing, but in addition to that, you know, it sounded like people were loving the original Roost. You know, you had $300,000 in sales your first full year for your proprietary product, which is really impressive. Why change that? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the, the first Roost, the functionality of it, I mean, it really was a early adopter product in that it's not, you know, I'll admit it's not like super intuitive, super easy to use. It's, uh, it's not very user-friendly. That was directly a result of the manufacturing process that I used because I'm using a laser cutter. Everything's like a 2D shape that you snap together. So it ends up looking like this big blocky thing. The only way around that was to go injection molding. And that is a, uh, if you're familiar with the injection molding process, it's a very capital intensive uh, adventure at the beginning just to get the tools made. So, so the, the margin part and the revenue part the problem is the first roost took 20 minutes to assemble, which is when you are the manufacturer, I'm then looking at, well, if I want to do a thousand of these things a month, I need to have four or five people. Well, if you have four or five people doing assembly work, well, then you have to have one person managing that, those four and five people. And so the scaling of the manufacturing process was not was just flat not there and not something I wanted to get into. And that was probably even a bigger deterrent than the margin. So... Uh, so yeah, so the going to injection molding, it's a uh, you pay a lot at the beginning, but then the product is much quicker to manufacture, and if you do it right, the unit cost can also be lower too. So it just made sense to go that route and evolve the product. So when you say injection molding, is that what you're thinking, or what I'm thinking of? For most plastic things, you create, you, know, you pay a lot upfront to have a metal mold made. It's almost like a Know, an inverse of what you have, and then you pump in the plastic into that into that one mold. It it hardens. You open it up, pop it out, and do it again and again and again. But the but the upfront molds are exorbitantly expensive. Uh, yes, that's that is the process. Yep, they uh, uh, they machine stainless steel blocks of metal, and then put them in these huge presses, and they squirt your plastic in. And then they pull the molds apart, and your part drops out. The cost for that is anywhere from. $10,000 at the bare, bare minimum per mold, uh, up to fifty, sixty thousand, 60,000 or more just for one mold that's going to make one part. So if you have five parts, then you got to have five times that. And the, the Roost actually has either 13 to 14 molds. So that's why the startup cost is going to be so high because we've got all those different tools to build at the beginning. 
That's crazy. So that's why you have the 400K plus goal for Kickstarter that has to re reach just because you got to cover the cost of all those insanely expensive molds. Bingo. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, how did the prototyping process differ? I mean, you, with injection molding, it's, you know, I, was it 3D printing? I'm guessing that's, I mean, because if, yeah. with injection molding, you can't test it until you have the mold. So, did you do everything by 3D printing? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I still had the laser cutter. And so, I could do, uh, functional kind of shapes out of that. Um, and then I, I made a decision about a year ago to really start the injection molding approach. And I and, and to design something for injection molding is a task that should absolutely be left to the experts. Um, so I ended up uh, partnering or uh, bringing on as a contractor a like a designer who specializes in making things for injection molding. So I would take my uh, laser cut versions of the roost and we would then translate those parts, simplify them into a uh, injection moldable part. And if, if anyone's considering going down the injection molding route, I absolutely implore them to work with someone that's done injection molding before, or otherwise you're going to, you're just going to have a, a hell of a time once you start talking to manufacturers, they look at your part and they're like, this thing is never going to work. And then you're, you're going to waste a lot of time unless you work with someone that knows what they're doing. So were you laser cutting? I mean, before you were using, um, not plastics for V1 for the first original roost, you were using metal, I believe. Um, so for this one, were you cutting it? Were you kind of laser cutting out chunks of plastic? And if so, that laser cutter, could it do 3D cutting or was it, is it just kind of in a 2D world? And did, oh. if so did that also give you a kind of restrict what kind of parts you were able to laser cut? Yeah, right. sorry. Yeah, the, yeah, the laser cutter, it's, yeah, it's simply 2D shapes, but you can get creative and make 3D things out of them. If you just look at like laser cut boxes online, you'll see all these neat joints that people can make to create 3D shapes. And so I was basically doing that just on out of uh, this Delrin plastic. But once we had a 3D model of the product. Then we did start 3D printing. And so I've, for the last six months, have been 3D printing prototypes from kind of a whole range of, you know, anywhere from like $20 a part per with the 3D print costs all the way up to five dollars $600 per part based off of like how high a quality of print I wanted at the time. That's crazy. And so do you have your own 3D printer maybe for some of the lower level work that you're doing, those $20 parts? And then you're, you're probably, I'm guessing, contracting with a super high-end machine for those really high-end ones? Right. I, I don't have one yet. I, I think I would like to get one. They're pretty finicky still. So actually I used, uh, or my designer had a 3D printer in his shop. So we used his quite a bit. And then also though, uh, like Sculptio.com is a great website pretty quick turnaround just upload the file and then two weeks later your parts arrive if you want to get high end then quick parts and okay, quick parts is who i used for a lot of the high-end prints where now you're talking a couple three four hundred bucks apart but the, the quality is so much higher than on a on a lower cost one so what do you do i mean a, a four hundred and fifty thousand dollar goal kickstarter campaign it's really ambitious of course so what kind of prep work do you do to try to ensure that that's a success, the groundwork you lay before you go live, because I'm sure there was a, a tremendous amount you did. Yeah, probably for the last three months, three months prior to starting was really, I started you know, shifting what I was focusing my efforts on to kind of preparing for that. And so 
to date had probably 10,000 email addresses from customers or potential customers where like they had emailed me and I didn't have a roost that could fit their specific laptop. So I was, of course, collecting those email addresses for the last year and a half. And I knew that when I was to be ready to launch, I had about 10,000 email addresses that I could hit and have a pretty high conversion rate on that first day of the Kickstarter. And so my strategy was just to go as big as possible on day one and hope that that would then kind of raise the awareness of the campaign that would get the momentum to carry us through. And that sort of has been the case. <laughs> yeah, and you did, because uh, right now, I mean, we're recording this on, what, the 18th, I think, of June. It's going to air on the, uh, the 26th, Friday the 26th. And you're, I mean, you're almost there. You've got, the goal is 450, I believe, and you're at 375K right now-ish. Is that? Yeah, yeah, we're uh, 475 is the goal. So we're, yeah, we're just 100K away. And, and well, it's funny, Kickstarter, it's really similar to your e-commerce store in that now, especially with the, they now are integrated with Google Analytics. So you can see what the traffic is per day. You can see your conversion rate. And you can see, and you can kind of predict pretty accurately the, the daily take you're going to have in Kickstarter once, you know, once things have kind of settled out. So we're on a trajectory where we're going to hit goal in about a week and then have a, a few days there once we're over the goal towards the end of the campaign, which would be great. That's, oh man, pull out the champagne when that, when that rolls around. It's going to be huge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so much work. It's got to be, I mean, you've, you've spent so much time and energy on this. To see it all come to, you know, I had at one point, it's got to be, got to be wild. Are you working with a, a company that, this is the first time I've heard of this, but you're working with a company that specializes in driving paid traffic to your Kickstarter campaign to help out. Yeah. How does that work? And is it something you've been happy with? Would you recommend it? Yeah, totally. So I, I didn't really know this existed until like two, three weeks ago. I, I heard people had advertised for their campaigns, during their campaigns, but I'd never really looked into it. Um, and, and honestly, I, I hadn't planned on using them when I started. So the reason I jumped on with these guys, the name of the group is Funded Today. And that's a pretty small team of uh, kind of young entrepreneurs out of Salt Lake City, I think, or Ogden, Utah. And so I had raised about 250000 on my own from email and encouraging people to share. And so, but the campaign, it sort of was on a trajectory where we weren't going to hit the goal, or it was going to be very close, actually. And the scenario for this group that I'm working with now is they take a percentage of what they raise over the whole campaign from like the time they joined to the end of the campaign. And they're basically spending their money doing the paid advertising during the campaign, making sure that they're going to want to make a cut too. So then at the end of the campaign, I then cut them a check for the, the portion that I owe them for, you know, per the agreement. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a different world out there now, I think with Kickstarter and any campaign that's done over a couple three, 400,000, almost, I think always is using some form of paid advertising, which was kind of a surprise to me. And in terms of the cut that they take, is it off the top line? Because it's got to be on the amount raised. So what percent do they take of the amount raised that they bring in? So yeah, you know, Kickstarter takes about 9% as is. And then the funded today guys, they have a range. And I, I negotiated a, a amount with them. But it's going to be between like say 25 and 35%, 35-40%. Wow. So between the paid and the Kickstarter segment, you could potentially only be taking 50 cents on the dollar for what you raise. Yeah, they came on halfway through the campaign for me. So 
everything I made before them coming on is goes. I get all of that. But yeah, that's certainly a very big cut. But you know, to their credit, a good percentage of that take is going to the paid advertisements, and so you know, you're paying them a fee to to, to perform that service for you for sure. Yeah. Shoot, we should have organized this and planned on releasing this podcast earlier before we brought them on. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so you don't have to pay those guys for these. So, oh, yeah. um, well, for everyone listening, I just, if you haven't seen James's Roost, it's a really, really cool product. Again, like I said, I've backed it and backed it on day one. He's done an incredible job with the engineering, with the design. And it's, it's something I'm actually, it was at James, I was telling you beforehand, like it's something I'm actually going to use on a daily basis. My laptop right now is, on my desk way down, I always got to hunch over and look at it with my two big screens. It's, it's kind of the odd man out and, and traveling a lot of times, I notice it's a pain. So I'd really encourage you to check it out. You can go to the roostand.com, which is James's website. That is his e-commerce site, but it should redirect or have a big call to action to redirect over to the, the Kickstarter where you can yep. find out. Or you can just search on Kickstarter for The Roost. Are those the best ways to find it, James? Yeah, that. And then also, if you just type in roo.st, we've got a fun little short domain that goes right to air. So it's just ro.st and that'll take you right there. Perfect. And I mean, this isn't like a crazy, insanely priced thing for the product. It is, it's, it's really reasonable. It's, it's what, like 59 bucks for 59 bucks for a roost right now. Oh, uh, 49, 49, 49. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Best price ever going to be on there. So yeah, we didn't plan that. That just happened. But yeah, you know, it's, it's really reasonable. So I'm kind of, uh, not to be overly promotional, but it's a really cool product. So check it out. James, before we wrap up, I got one last question for you. Yeah. What's been the hardest part of this entire process? I mean, it's easy for people like me who get the, you get the product in October. We look at it, we say, oh, this is amazing. We use it. But I think really, I think it's really difficult unless you're the founder, the, the designer, you, you know, to really appreciate how much work goes into something like this, bringing it to mass market. So what's been the hardest part of the entire process for you? Gosh, uh, you know, I, I just had this conversation last night with someone. I think the answer is you can only work on so many things at a time and to give them like your full attention. And a couple of those things are things that are going to be the difference between kind of you staying in the game or having to go back and get a, a day job. And having the energy and the focus and the kind of the awareness of knowing which problems those important ones are and making sure that you are very attentive to keeping that in check. I think that's kind of the hardest part because if that goes awry, then everything else kind of the wheels fall off. So, yeah, it's, it's knowing what's important and the keeping focus on that kind of regardless of whatever else it might be that you want to work on, but just keeping the, the goal in mind. Yeah. And what was that for the Roost in particular? Was it the marketing side? Was it the design aspect of it? What one part of the Roost process did you see as, as like being the most valuable thing you could spend your time focusing on to make sure it was a success? It changes, but like right now you're seeing one of them play out, and that is to produce this new Roost, I need to get this money raised. And if I didn't do a Kickstarter, it would have had to been a bank loan or something like that. So knowing that in order to keep this whole thing going, I had to hit this goal was a focusing mechanism to drive my attention and all my efforts towards that. And then, and then once the Kickstarter campaign's over, then it's pretty simple. Like it's now it's make the product and get the product out and ship. And so just knowing what it is at each time is the most important thing. And going forward, that seems like to me that when I'm not doing that, that's when things start going a little sideways. Again, the roostand.com 
R-O-O.S-T or head over to Kickstarter and search for The Roost. Yeah. James, excited to see you hit that 475 mark. Can't wait to get it in the mail in October. And Awesome. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on and sharing. It's been fun. No, thanks, Andrew. Loved it. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week. But if you're interested in launching your own e-commerce store, download my free 55-page ebook on niche selection and getting started. And if you're a bit more experienced, look into the e-commerce fuel private forum. It's a vetted community for store owners with at least 4,000 in monthly sales or industry professionals with at least a year or more experience in the e-commerce space. You can learn more about both the ebook and the form at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.